We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Presence of your spirit in our midst, we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Church, you can be seated. Good morning. Thanks, Tyler, for leading us. That was a great last song, especially really ministered to me. Uh, My name is Patrick. I'm one of the pastoral candidates here. And so it's so good to see you all. Let me run through a few announcements before I get started in our text. First, let me just say if you're a visitor here, we're so happy to have you here. There's a QR code behind me to get connected to our church. There's also a connect table out there. We'd love to get to know you more, and we'd love to just tell you more about the Savior we serve So if you're new here, thank you for being here, uh, and we just love to connect. I'll stay up here after the service, love to talk to you. Um, Also, finances, as always, we just want to thank you for giving so faithfully to the church. Actually, all the things I'm about to run through have to do with our sermon today in terms of a community, of generosity, of fellowship. Thank you so much for giving. Uh, We do have a Venmo account now, so if you give online or physically, however you want to give, We just want to make this uh, option available. Again, there's a giving box out there uh, in the lobby, and there's a little Venmo uh, code there for you as well. Another reminder is the ladies' retreat is coming up uh, at the bed and breakfast April, I think, 29th through 30th. Am I getting that right? Yep. And uh, you can sign up now. There are limited spaces, and so if you want to go, you should sign up quickly because there are limited spaces, and you might not get in if you don't sign up soon. Also, We are having a men's Bible study for the four weeks in April, so just be aware of that. More details to come. So men's Bible study, four weeks in April. Uh, Two two other brief things. Uh, There's a membership weekend March 5th, so if you're not a member here but you want to become a member, put that on your calendar. March 5th, we're going to have a membership weekend. And then finally, in terms of kids' ministry, thank you so much for all of you who are serving. We do still need help in the kids' ministry with more volunteers So if you hear the Lord calling you right now, um, maybe you could sign up to help us in the kids' ministry. So we'd love to get some extra help there. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 2 this morning. So if you'll open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and we are in verses 42 to 47. Josh got like the whole chapter of chapter 2, and I get the last five verses or so. So I I don't know how it worked out that way, but that's the way it worked out. So Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. I'll read that, and then we'll pray, and we'll jump right into it. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many signs and wonders were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Let's pray. 
Father, we do come before you. We uh, thank you for your word, and we thank you that it continues to speak to us. We pray, Father, that you would especially come in this time, that your spirit would anoint me as I seek to be faithful to your word. Thank you for the church. Thank you for this beautiful picture of the church that we get, and we pray that we would be encouraged where we need to be encouraged and challenged where we need to be challenged. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I was reading a study, I read a lot, but I was reading a study that said since COVID, 40% of people are feeling lonely frequently or almost all the time. 40% of people are feeling lonely frequently or almost all the time. Over 60%, over 60% of those aged 18 to 25 reported that they felt lonely all the time, all the time. 60%, 18 to 25, said they feel lonely all the time. To press into this even more, uh, the New York Times columnist David Brooks closed his article on the state of evangelical Christianity saying this. Here's a quote. The age of the narcissistic self, the age of consumerism, the age of moral drift, has left us with bitterness and division. It has left us with a surging mental health crisis. It has left us with a pandemic of loneliness. It has left us with people being nasty to each other. Millions of people are looking for something else. They're looking for some system of belief that is communal, that gives life transcendent meaning. Acts has given us the narrative of Jesus' commission to his apostles and his ascension. Last week, we saw the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost, and Peter stands up and he preaches a sermon about the Spirit and about Jesus Christ himself, and 3,000 people are saved. It's the first Christian sermon. The church is birthed, and the question arises, what happens next? What are they to do now? You have 3,000 people that have been saved, And what happens next? The text before us today shows us the power of Pentecost was channeled into communities that were compelling to the world and they continued to grow all the more. Rodney Stark, in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, notes that the growth of the early church is one of the most remarkable facts in all of history. Just as a historian, the fact that about 1,000 Jesus followers in AD 40 turned to 30 million Christians in 300 years is almost unexplainable without God's hand upon this community. How did an early, small Jewish sect following this guy from Nazareth go on to become really the world's major religion? They had nothing that we think is necessary for church. They had no social media, they had no buildings, they had no vision statements, they had no podcasts, they had no websites, they had no seminaries, they had no VBS, they had no preachers and sneakers. Why did they grow? Why did they grow? They grew because they were a people committed to Christ, they were committed to Christ, They were committed to one another, and therefore they were compelling to the world. They were committed to Christ. 
They were committed to one another, and therefore they were compelling to the world. So we see five things that mark this new community as distinct and beautiful, and other people look in and they say, I want a part of that. I want a part of that. So five things. Since there's five things, I'm going to run through these rather quickly, so it's going to go at a brisk pace, so try to keep up. Five things that mark this new community, things that they were devoted to. First, the early church devoted themselves, it says in 242, to the apostles' teaching, to the apostles' teaching. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What does that mean? Well, the apostles were those who walked and talked and heard the teachings of Jesus. They watched his entire life. But they were also the people that relayed the teachings and the events of Jesus to the next generation after Jesus was gone. So to be devoted to the apostles' teaching means they were a church that was devoted to Jesus, where it was all about Jesus. A church is most fundamentally a people gathered around our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is in Him that our hope is found. You shouldn't be in church first and foremost because of the pastors, because of the community, because of the music, because of the building, because of the kids' ministry, because of the bar we have right outside of our lobby. You shouldn't be here because of that. No, we gather because we want to drink from the living waters who is Jesus Christ himself. We are devoted to the apostles' teaching and the apostles taught about Jesus. I hear a lot of people say, I want to go to a church that looks like the New Testament. So do I. Looks like the early church. Well, what was the early church doing? We get a nice picture of what the early church was doing here. They were devoted to remembering the story of Jesus. So we don't get up here and preach every Sunday because we haven't figured out something better to do. We don't get up here and do this because it's just what the because this is what the church has done. No, we do this every Sunday because this is what we are called to do. We are called to meditate, to open the Word, and set our eyes upon Jesus Christ Himself. This is our diet. This is our nourishment. So like our daily meals, weekly meals, we don't neglect it. We come and we hear the apostles' teaching about Jesus Christ Himself. And for some of you, it's hard, it's difficult to come to church. You might feel like exhausted after the week of work, after dealing with your family, after dealing with personal issues. You might be exhausted, honestly, by just the hypocrisy in the church. You don't want to come. Or you might be exhausted by your continual battle with sin. You wake up on Sunday morning and you think, I just don't want to go. I'm tired. But the church is meant to be life-giving for you. It is meant to be life-giving for you. It's meant to be energizing. It's meant to pick you up when you're down. Because when we come here, we remember that we come to a Savior whose yoke is easy and His burden is light. That's what we remind ourselves of every time we come. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the Winter Olympics. I know it's a little controversial. But there was one great story that's coming out of the Winter Olympics about the two USA speed skaters, Aaron Jackson and Brittany Bowe. Aaron Jackson and Brittany Bowe have been friends since they were children. They grew up together, skating together. Aaron 
she slipped on the 500-meter qualifying race and lost her spot even though she is ranked number one in the world in this race. So she's like set to win gold. And she slipped in the qualifying race, so she's disqualified. She didn't quite make it. She was like the last person, sixth or something, and only five got in. Her longtime friend, Brittany, qualified for the race. But Brittany decided to give up her spot so Aaron could race. She dropped out and let Aaron go in. Aaron went forward and won the gold in that, in that race. I tell this story because it's a picture of what Christ has done for us. It's a picture of what Christ has done to us. He gave up his spot when we had slipped so that we might continue to live. We come to remember this. If you leave church regularly feeling condemned, there's a, you can be convicted. It's good to be convicted. But if you leave church feeling regularly condemned, then we are not doing our job properly. You should feel refreshed. Refresh because Jesus Christ is for you, and he loves you, and he sacrificed himself for you. We come as lonely, but we remember Jesus is our greatest friend. We come as beaten up, but we remember he is gentle and kind. We come as misled by so many people and sources and news outlets, and remember he is our good shepherd. We come as hungry, and remember he is our bread of life. We come as sad, and we remember he is our comfort. The early church was birthed from the story of Jesus, and the story of Jesus continued to be the lifeblood of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching concerning Jesus, concerning Jesus. So that is what we will continue to do here. Second, the early church devoted themselves to, it says, fellowship, to gathering together, both on Sundays and on other days of the week. Notice in verse 46, what does it say? And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The Jesus story wasn't something that just changed how they engaged on Sundays, but changed how they engaged every day. Day by day, they gathered together. They were so excited to be with one another, they just kept gathering, kept gathering. And this is so important for us to remember, as I noted, there's so much loneliness out there in the world. So much loneliness. And the gift of community is offered to us in the church. God has not only saved us, but he's called us to be together for our good and for our joy. We are social creatures, even you introverts out there. We are social creatures. We are hardwired for relationships created to be together, and the church offers a unique environment where there's commitment, commitment to one another. But again, it can be hard to be devoted to getting together for a few reasons. Let me just give you two. First, because we are trained to follow the gospel of preference in our culture. We are trained to follow the gospel of preference, that we do what we like, when we like, how we like. We're trained to think that everything is catered to us and we simply go along the aisle and choose what we like. That's what everything tells us to do. There's a scene, had to sneak this in, in the TV show Parks and Recreation in the episode Galentine's Day where Leslie Nope comes to Ron Swanson, great figure, asking why she finds herself not liking this guy that she's dating. 
It's like, why don't I like this guy? And Ron Swanson has one of those Ron moments where he like bestows wisdom upon her, right? And this is what he says, okay? You don't have to understand the show to get this point, all right? Just, just follow me here. He says about this guy that she's dating, it's because he's a tourist. He's a tourist, Leslie. He vacations in people's lives, takes pictures, puts them in his scrapbook, and moves on. Basically, Leslie, he's selfish, and you're not. That's why you don't like it. Everything around us trains us to be tourists in this world. You want this? Buy it. You want to live here? Move. You want to have a relationship with that person even though you're committed to someone else? Go for it. You're a tourist. We live what we could call Velcro lies where we just tear off all the time. We're like, no, we're not committed to that. We're not committed to that. That's fine. But the early church made covenants with one another. They were committed to one another. They were driven by this commitment. This was different from the world around them, and it's different from the world around us. And when people saw it, they wanted in on it. They wanted to be a part of it. Second, it can be hard to be devoted to one another, this fellowship with one another, because anytime you open yourself up to community, you also open yourself up to wounding. Anytime you open yourself up to community, you also open yourself up to wounding. For many of you, you have been so hurt by people in your life that you put a shell around yourself so no one can get in. And we all have a tendency to do this. And I just want to say I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. There are deep wounds represented in this church from parents, from friends, from the church itself, from the leaders itself. And I also want to say I'm sorry because if you do this, there will continue to be hurt and wound. That's what it means to commit yourself to something that sometimes it's painful. I don't want to paint a picture like it's just going to be all great if we commit to one another, if we continue to commit to one another. There's going to be all joy and no heartache and no sadness and no wounds. But I also want to encourage you who feel this way with two things. First, though people might abandon you, though people might hurt you, Jesus never will. Jesus never will. You are here or you come to church primarily because of him. Primarily because of him. We're not singing to anyone else but our triune God. <laughs> We're not thinking about anyone else but our God himself. And that's why we come here. So don't let the failings of others drive you away from the arms of your good shepherd. He's here for you, and he loves you, and he's fully committed to you, and he will never hurt you. Second, if you've opened yourself up to love, you also realize that when there is radical commitment, it also includes joy and union that goes beyond words. When you open yourself up to commitment, it includes joy and union that goes beyond words. There is a depth to relationships that have weathered the storms, that have seen our ugly sides, and that look you in the face and say, I still love you. I still love you. God has called us to be not only devoted to him, but devoted to one another. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, to foster a small sanctuary of trust, to commit to one another because Christ has committed to us to not be tourists in the world, but actually to make 
covenants with one another. And I, I can't help but think there are people in this room who long for it but haven't found it. You're like, yeah, I want that. And I'm here, and I'm still lonely. Well, again, I want to say, I'm sorry. We don't always do this perfectly. No church does this perfectly. So if you're feeling lonely here, I'm sorry. We, we, we will continue to do be- try to do better at these things. We will continue to try to foster community. That's why we have ladies' Bible studies. That's why we have the institute. That's why we have men's Bible studies. That's why we have small groups. We're trying to encourage this type of community, this type of fellowship. But I also want to encourage you, if you're feeling that way, to be the type of person you want others to be for you. Be the type of person that you want others to be for you. One of my friends told me a story about their church where a new couple came into the church and no one had them over. No one barely talked to them. And they felt hurt, they felt lonely, and they thought, we probably just need to leave this church. Nobody really wants us here. Nobody really cares. So what did they do, though? They decided, no, we're going to begin inviting people over to meals at our house. We're new, but we can still actually invite people over. So they did, and they started small, but they kept it consistent. Soon, most of the church had been invited into their home, and Sundays became a joy for them because they would look at different people's faces and they'd know their stories. They'd know about them. And suddenly they had community, they had fellowship. And in the midst of doing this, they actually changed the culture of the church. They changed the culture of the church. So be the type of person that you wish the church would be for you. I encourage you to do that. You can be a piece of changing the culture of churches by actually being that person who welcomes others. Continue to do that. The church community is meant to be a grace to you, and I urge you to press in, not away from it. Okay, third, we do have five things, remember. Third, the early church devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. Now, this could simply be another way of speaking of fellowship. You break bread together. But in a list like this, I think it refers actually to what we call the Lord's Supper, Communion, the Eucharist. This is the ordinances, the sacraments, baptism and communion. They not only devoted themselves to teaching the story of Jesus, they not only devoted themselves to community, but they devoted themselves to the ordinances, the sacraments. And I'm afraid for many of us, if we were to make a list like this, we would leave this one off. We would be like, well, yeah, that's somewhat important, but really the teaching and the community, it's really important. But no, this is in this list. Luke finds it important enough to have a separate line item to talk about the ordinances, the sacraments. Because, why? Because in them, we find the gospel dramatized. In them, we see the gospel materialized for us. So the sacraments are not so much us doing something, but enacting what Christ has done for us. So in baptism, we watch someone go from death to life. From unclean to clean, from old to new. In communion, we remember as we take the bread and the wine that Christ is for us. When we take of that, we taste and see that God has given us His Son and that He actually now lives within us. We declare our union with Him as we take of this bread and of this wine. 
We proclaim that He lives in us and that His blood covers all of our sins. The sacraments are material. They are visible signs of invisible grace that remind us that we not only need to have our minds engaged, but our bodies engaged. That's what the sacraments are. They're physical. So you need to have your whole being engaged in this gospel truth, not just your mind, but your whole being. And so we take part of communion each week because in it, the gospel is pictured. And we remember, even if the person up here doesn't talk about the gospel, which they should, but we see it right there. We see the gospel. That they're not only rituals for us, they're actually God reaching down to us and us lifting our hearts to him. They are means of grace to us. In the sacraments, we hear the voice of Jesus calling out, if you want to find me, you can uniquely find me here. Here. We just sang the song, your nearness is our good. Your nearness is our good. This is him near to us. We are are saying, Lord, you are near to us. You have sacrificed yourself for us. And we take that in every week for our nourishment and our encouragement. This is supposed to help you keep going on the long journey of your faith. Each week we come and we take it because we need it. We come in lonely and depressed and sad and beaten up. And we take of that and we say, Lord, nourish us with the truth of the gospel again. So they devoted themselves to that because they had to remember the story of Jesus, not just with their minds, with their very bodies. Fourth, I got no good transition there, okay? Fourth, it says the early church devoted themselves to prayer. The church is not only a learning church devoted to fellowship or devoted to teaching, a loving church devoted to fellowship, a worshiping church devoted to sacraments, but we are also a dependent church devoted to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. As a church, we call out in prayer because we need help from our Savior. We need help from our Savior. Prayer is raising your heart and your mind to God. And humility, humility is the foundation of prayer. It acknowledges we're all beggars before God. One Christian said, prayer is a surge of the heart a simple look turned towards heaven, a cry of recognition and love embracing both joy and trial. Throughout Acts, all of the biggest moments of Acts happen when they're praying. You can just go throughout the book. So it's when they're praying that the Spirit descends in Acts 2. It's when they're praying that they raise the lame in Acts 3. It's when they're praying that the house is shaken in Acts 4. It's when they're praying for the Samaritans, that the Holy Spirit comes on the Samaritans in Acts 8. It's when Peter prays that Tabitha is raised from the dead in Acts 9. And I could go on and on and on. God continually meets us, not just in the bread and the wine and the baptism, but in prayer. In prayer. And in prayer, the church acknowledges we need God's help. We need God's help. Too often in the church, we try to do things on our own. We think, oh, if we could just do better at this. But in prayer, we are reminded that we are not a people who have it all figured out. We only have figured out that we don't have it all figured out. That's the only thing we have going for us. So we lift up our voice in prayer. And how many communities around you are honest about this fact that we need help? That we need help. It seems like everything around us is trying to sell us the lie that they have something that can fix our lives. 
They have something that can fix us. But the church can be different here. We can be a people who are radically honest with people and say, we are completely destitute, completely poor, completely impoverished, completely empty, completely in need of help. We've got nothing to give you here except God himself. That may not sound attractive, but people are looking for honesty and authenticity. And I think we all know deep down that that is where we are. The church can stand as a light here in the midst of darkness. And you know what? In the early church, people saw that devotion to prayer, and they said, I want a part of it. I want to be a part of a church that's devoted to recognizing that we are destitute and we need help, and that we call out to the sovereign Lord of the universe to say, yes, Lord, help me. We are a church called to be devoted to prayer because we are completely dependent upon our Savior. Fifth, the early church was generous with one another. Generous with one another. We see this in 244 to 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this makes people nervous, especially in America. Because there's two economic systems that basically have run throughout the world. One is capitalism and the other is communism. Capitalism is where trade is controlled by private owners for profit rather than the state. Communism is where all property is publicly owned. And these verses, to be honest, sound a little bit like communism to us. They sold all their things and they had a big pile and they just distributed to everyone who has need. But though it sounds like communism to us, I think it's actually better labeled voluntary communalism based on love. Voluntary communalism based on love. Though it says they were selling off everything, it must be hyperbole because later on we see that people are hosting Paul in their houses. We see that Ananias and Sapphira are not required to give a gift, but they decide to give a gift. So they're not, they're not made to sell off everything but they are voluntarily doing this. So we have a tendency to just say that and kind of sweep the text away and move on. But we we need to be challenged by these verses as well. We need to be challenged by these verses as well. Because the line of generosity, of giving to those who are needy, those who are poor, runs straight through the Bible. From the beginning to the end, Christians are those who provide for the poor. Deuteronomy 1511, God told his people they were to be open-handed with the poor. Open-handed with the poor. This idea of being generous is actually based on the truth of the gospel. Jesus says in Matthew 10.8, freely you have received, freely give. You hear that? Because the gospel is true, because you did nothing to earn your salvation, because you have freely received from him, you freely give. You freely give. So our giving to those who are poor, especially in our communities and even in the world, is based on the gospel truth. They devoted themselves to being generous with one another because the gospel affects our finances. It affects how we use our money. We are no longer selfish with our money, but we actually give it to others because we recognize everything we have came from God himself. John Chrysostom put it this way. This is challenging. This is what he says. Not to enable the poor to share in our goods is to steal from them and deprive them of life. 
Do you hear that? Not to enable the poor to share in our goods is to steal from them and deprive them of life. The goods we possess are not ours, but theirs. They're not ours, they're theirs. If God has given it to you, it's not yours, it's His. It's meant to be shared. Even more than that, according to Matthew 25, when we serve the poor, we're actually serving Jesus. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did unto me. You're actually serving Jesus Christ himself and serving the poor. The early church was radically generous. Radically generous. And isn't this a beautiful picture? For many people in the world, maybe for many people in this room, you grew up where you had no one to fall back on. And for those of us who are in this room and you had someone to fall back on, it's hard for us to imagine the experience of when we hit rock bottom, we we have a safety net. We have, we have family or parents or someone to help. But can you imagine, and many of you don't have to imagine this, when you hit rock bottom, there's no one. There's no one there to provide. There's no family history of support. There's nothing there for you. The church was meant to be the first social safety net. The first social safety net. To be in the arms of the church, they would grab these people and say, we got you. We will support you. We will be generous with you. And for some of you, you have money and you can do this. And this, this, this needs to be a challenging word for us. If you have the money to do this, you should be giving your money to the poor. That is what the early church did. And for some of you, you don't have any money but you can still be generous with your time and with your relationship. Generosity is the key here. The church was a compelling community because they genuinely cared for one another. They genuinely cared for one another. So we've gone through this list of the five things. The early church devoted themselves to teaching the story of Jesus, to fellowship, community, to the ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism, to prayer, to generosity. And how is the American church doing on this front? Notice I didn't say Emmaus. I just said American church. How is the American church doing on this front? I'm encouraged by you, Emmaus. Don't be discouraged. I've seen this in you. But how is the American church doing on this front? I don't know if you realize this, but every so often another gospel is found. I know that's scary. We have the gospel of Thomas. We have the Gospel of Judas. These weren't included in our canon because they were later, they were offshoots. But John Tyson, a pastor in New York, notes that they also found an American Gospel recently. And in paragraph 249, this is what it says. This is made up, just to be clear, okay? There's no American Gospel, but this is what the American Gospel would say, right? They studied the apostles' teaching when they had time. They went to fellowship when nothing else was on their schedule and their kids were not in sports. They prayed when they needed something. They talked about generosity but kept all their possessions. They didn't invite people into their homes. They were irrelevant to the places they lived. And sometimes, randomly, one or two people became saved. That's a challenging word, isn't it? 
But maybe this is the reason why all the line graphs of Christians in America are doing the Omicron thing right now, right? They're trending downward. Have we, have we lost the picture of the early church and what they devoted themselves to? When early believers converted to Christ, it never occurred to them to fit this into the margin of their lives. No, they redefined themselves around a new center, Christ and his people. They put the hymn first in their hearts, in their schedules, and in their budgets. He was first in everything. We have the opportunity to be a compelling community because we are centered on Christ and committed to one another. Now, what is the result of them devoting themselves to one another and to Christ? Growth. They grew numerically. We get scared with that. Like, oh, I don't want to be that type of church that we just think about growth. But Acts talks about growth a lot, okay? There's bad type of growth, and there's good types of growth. And Acts talks about growth a lot. It says in verse 47, they had favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day who were those who were being saved. Why? Because they committed themselves to these things. People saw them giving away their stuff. They saw this sanctuary of trust. They saw them acknowledging their need. They saw radical unselfishness, and they wanted in. They said, I want to be a part of a community like that. That's what the church can be. It can be a light on top of a hill of darkness. Growth will come when the church puts our roots firmly down in these realities. I don't know if you've ever been to uh, Muir Woods in California, north of San Francisco. This is where you'll find the giant sequoia trees. Have you seen the picture? If you haven't been there, you've probably seen the pictures of these. These are the world's largest trees. The, their average height is 150 to 280 feet, and they're sometimes 20 to 26 feet in diameter. You've probably seen the pictures where they hollowed out one and you could drive your car through it, right? I mean, these trees are massive. And think, these trees are thousands of years old, a thousand years old or more. Think of all the storms these trees have weathered. All the different weather systems and the wind, and how do they stay grounded? You might assume that their roots go so deep into the ground that they, they just sustain themselves through the midst of these storms. But actually, they've done work on their root systems, and many of the roots only go three feet deep. Think about how high they are. 250 feet. Three feet deep. So how do they stay connected and so strong? The secret of their strength is that their roots are interlocked with one another, providing stability. Their roots are interlocked with one another. All of these trees, they join up together and literally hold each other up. And the church is that type of community where we lock arms with one another. We join up with one another. We link together with radical unselfishness. And we sustain one another because Christ sustains us. Church is meant to be an encouragement to you. It's meant to be a light to the world. It's meant to help you remember the story of Jesus. And why do we do this, Emmaus? Why do we do this? Why do we give ourselves away like this? I've seen it in our church, and I'm so encouraged by what I've seen here. Continue to walk in faithfulness. But we do this ultimately because we're walking in the footsteps of our Savior. The early church didn't think, oh, what kind of community could we be? Let's, uh, let's try to figure out what would be attractive to the world. No, they looked at their Savior and they said, we must act like him. We must act like him. And what did he do? Jesus emptied himself. Jesus gave himself away 
Jesus didn't hold on to power. He didn't hold on to wealth. He laid his interests aside. He descended from heaven so that we might ascend to heaven. Philippians 2, 4-8 says this, Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul's just reflecting on this church community. Don't look to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see that? The reason we do this, because this is what Christ did. Who, let me explain to you what Christ did. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. We empty ourselves for one another because Christ emptied himself for us. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And a lot of times we stop there. We're like, go sacrifice. It's tons of fun. What's the result? The result is, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. We likewise give up our own interests because it's precisely in doing this that we find joy, that we find life. We don't sacrifice just to sacrifice. We sacrifice because Jesus has told us through sacrifice, life, joy, health, union comes. On the other side, there's something beautiful. And that's what the world recognized. People are suffering both in here and out in the world. They're lonely. They're at sea. And people are looking for a community. A community where there's radical commitment. Where there's radical unselfishness. They're looking for, for friendships. They're looking for transcendent meaning. The church is called to imitate her Savior in these things. To give up and be exalted. To give up so that we might have life. And people can find this in Christ and in the church. And in the church. Jesus is leading us to a life that is deeper, that is stronger, that is more fulfilling than we could ever imagine. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have given us the church to help us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to nourish us. And we pray that we would be that type of church for others. We thank you for the grace of doing that already, Father. And we pray that you would help us even more. Give us your spirit to help us walk in the path of righteousness and the path of obedience. We recognize our Savior stands for us and he forgives us and he loves us. And we pray as we press into that more that we would live in all holiness right Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.